Welcome to the D-Web Podcast. Today we have Rob again on the show, and it's me, Mark Nadal, and we're going to be discussing some fun things this week. You want to tell us first about your travels? Yeah, I got back from Berlin, which was a blockchain conference, and there were several legitimate projects, but in the D-Web sphere, it's always a shocking reminder about how many people are solving um, a problem that has no useful solution, or they're trying to do useful things in the most backwards direction. So anybody out there in the blockchain world, uh, more than happy to justify these claims and or uh, discuss them with you. (laughs) And um, how about we chat about gun? What's happening? most recently with Gun, I saw uh, Q, let's see, what's his screen name? QVF? Yeah, he was mentioning the, uh, the video chat. He's making some good progress with uh, doing decentralized video audio conferencing in Gun, which is something I thought was impossible. He actually came out to Berlin to meet me while I was there. And when we were chatting, we sat down and tried to do some encrypted um, <laughs> we sat down and tried to encrypt the video streams and we actually got it working in about three lines of code, but there's a couple bugs in C, um, that I'm going to have to improve or fix before it can really work in production. But the fact in just a few lines of code, we were able to get things rolling and prototyped was pretty exciting. And then I've been busy working away, um, trying to focus on, figuring out this solution to RAD, which is the storage engine, and getting those bugs fixed. That's kind of the bottleneck, I think, for the rest of the community right now, because anybody who's using GUN in production or for projects are likely getting this error that no acknowledgement has um, responded from the, the disk driver. And so they're just getting all these errors occasionally and that's because rad is queuing things wrong and i'm trying to fix that and i I finally came up with an idea today it actually worked but now a few other tests are crashing and i'm I'm hoping i can have those hopefully this is the correct route and i'll be able to have all those things fixed hopefully soon but you never know how long these things will take (laughs) yeah of course well um I took to heart a lot of the things that you shared with me during our last chat and I reviewed the video. Uh, so if it seemed like I was maybe not getting the message last time, don't worry. I it got through. <laughs> um, so I haven't yet cloned my project to this machine. I have it on another machine, but I was going to um, show you some of the things I came up with. So I've implemented, what is a um, multi-dimensional structure so that a developer can define how many dimensions they want and what is the size of each, um, what is the, the um, length of each space, if we're start, assuming we're starting from zero. Um, haven't bothered to think about starting from negative numbers yet, just specifying positive numbers only. Um, but they can, but uh, you can put in the number of dimensions that you want and then what gun will do, uh, sorry, what, uh, uh, oh, also too, um, I think the name that I'm going to go with is 
uh, substrate. So React substrate would be the framework name that you would install. And uh, it was available. And it seems like a useful analogy because you can build other things on top of it. So more complex things on top of it. So substrate seems like a decent word name choice. Um, so what substrate does is generate all of the different tags that you would need for all of the coordinates. And it turns out that this process, there's already um, mathematically, it's called the Cartesian product. And so this is every possible uh, combination of coordinates. So if you have a two by two space, then you'd get a big list of all these different coordinates. And it also includes um, wildcard character. So if you want to see all objects that are on a particular position on Y, or all objects on a particular position on X, you just specify a wildcard like an asterisk. For, or you just omit a coordinate or maybe perhaps pass null for the coordinate that you want to just omit. And then through the framework, it will interpret that as meaning, okay, you want to look at, let's say one on Y and asterisk on X. So there's a matching um, tag for that, tagging like you were talking about last time. And then the framework will have uh, every time you post an update, like let's say you, you put an object at one, one, uh, one on X and one on Y, it will also put that object on one on X, one on asterisk and all other objects. Um, so that then that way, when you do a fetch for that, like one on X, anything on Y, you get all of them. So uh, that is working, but in the process of coming up with that, I had to pretty much um, restructure a ton of stuff and everything broke. <laughs> so nothing works right now, but I do have some tests I could show if I just um, take the time to clone it. But one of the things I'd wanted to ask you about is, and we were talking about this a bit in uh, the in Gitter, is uh, data that we don't want to synchronize. So the reason for this is because what I want to accomplish, one of the things I want to accomplish with Substrate is that uh, users can place and manage all of their application state in, in GUN. So we still want the GUN API and all the real time, all the, all the beauty of that, but we don't want this to be shared and synchronized out to other people. So that's one thing that I think I'll probably need to do as um, probably a, a module for GUN. Um, maybe we could dig into that a little bit because we were, we were chatting about some of the different approaches that are available to do that now. And um, oh, and then user data. So I think that placing this data on the user object is typically going to be the default for people using this framework. Because in most cases, they're building an application and each person is wanting to, like let's say you have, um, oh, I've also changed from using the, the term index to using the term bucket. So I've, I've, I've kind of worked through some of my concepts as I'm developing some of this stuff. And so now I'm using the term bucket. So um, a bucket in the framework is defined using a symbol so that that way it's guaranteed to be globally unique. And that's, um, oh, I just realized I can show you a working application. Nice. Yeah, uh, actually that was one. Huh? I was excited because I love math, like Cartesian products and uh, dimensions <laughs> and stuff. So. 
I'm already very distracted in math land. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe we should go to screen sharing so I can uh, show you the application that I launched. And uh, I should have started off with this. Uh, building this and then deploying it and then testing it was really what kind of showed me what I was doing wrong. Nice. And, and along with also too, like learning from what you were saying last time. So let's do that. Shipping always makes the difference. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to open this. Uh, it is. I've been okay. trying to encourage people on Twitter that they don't need to worry about partnerships or perfect code or all this other stuff. Just go out and do stuff. And here you're giving a demo of stuff that you've already done. <laughs> so, so at work, uh, there was some chat about the, the retro board that we use. And it's such a simple little application. A retro board just is basically digital post-its in a space, a digital space that's shared where everybody can uh, add and edit and remove these post-its from different columns. So you create groups of post-its. So I decided this was a really simple thing to build and I wanted to try, um, I wanted to make this a, an MVP target, like basically that as I'm trying to make this work, I'm developing the framework to support that effort. So you can add some columns with this. It's not intended to be uh, pretty, it's just intended to work. And so here we're getting some columns. The best way to start. And the way that this was implemented the first time around is that we're just using stringified arrays, or also um, as you called them, atomic arrays. and so the columns is an array of objects that have a name property with a string on it. And then again, underneath that, we do the same thing. So another stringified array, um, blah, 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 blah. And we get some content this way. We get some content this way. Now this had, uh, it very quickly looks like a Kaban board that is popular with Waffle, Asana, and other apps. Yeah. Yeah, it does kind of resemble, um, or like an agile board. Yes. So I think that in this current implementation, I'm using a unique ID on each of these, which has um, an unfortunate bug, which is that if we remove this column and then we add it back, uh, the data is missing, but it's actually still in the database. So it's completely lost. We've just sent data into, into uh, the twilight zone. We can never get it back. Well, that is, in, uh, that is intentional with a document database, is if you have some nested data inside of an object and you delete the outer object, the data inside shall be lost forever. But is that the behavior of what you want to happen in this column? What we wanted, what we would want is for that note to be deleted, but it's the note itself is actually still existing in the, in our database. It's just that we can't get to it. Right. So we would need to either add a process to go through and like get that and delete it when the column is removed. Um, or maybe we just needed a better data structure. And I came to the conclusion that really that this is the issue is that, this data structure has a fundamental flaw. The other, um, the first way that I implemented this was instead of using a unique ID for each column, uh, like column slash unique ID on each, uh, instead I just used the 
array index. So that also had a bug, which is that when you would delete, let's say this middle column here, you would see the notes move between columns because those notes were not actually attached to the column. They're just attached to whatever has that number. And when the columns, when you delete one, then the, the order changes. Now the numbers are different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, now this, this uh, is what led me to like review what we talked about and come up with um, something that has the concept of dimensions. Also, I realized that this is, um, because this doesn't have a concept of user data or boards, like the idea that you would have multiple boards. And so if you add that to the mix, then what you end up with is three dimensions because boards is your first dimension or basically versions is another, if you have like a version to document, let's say a similar situation would be versioned spreadsheet. So a spreadsheet being a 2D structure, and then you've got all these versions through time, and so it's 3D. And I wanted to be able to handle that, so then I started to uh, implement, and I've gotten uh, pretty far. Let's see if I can just quickly clone. Yeah, spreadsheet software seems like it should be simple, but there are so many different relationships and different ordering of those relationships that to do it right, and have a good experience with it is surprisingly difficult. Yeah. I've not fixed my transparency here. I think I'll just switch to a different terminal. But from an algorithms standpoint and a data structure standpoint, um, what did you wind up switching over to as how you're going to format the data? So do you mean, the objects like the the array or the which part of it all of the above yeah um well so for this application these individually i prefer something ephemeral uh because i think that they're so small and this is not the sort of thing that like you're going to like use and reuse and link to from different places it's not um like for example, if we compare it to a tweet, a tweet may have some importance that people want to, they want to be able to refer back to it and they want to remember that time in, the his, in history when so-and-so said such and such thing on Twitter. Whereas with these, nobody has that sort of concern. So if one of these is lost, nobody's going to care, they're just gonna remake it, that's whatever. Um, so for that reason, I think that stringified arrays are good, however, uh, I also noticed that these have a problem for React because uh, the way that React knows whether or not to update the object and to do a full render and repaint and then go and modify and update the DOM is it does, uh, what I think it does is a um, strict equality on the data that is being passed in. And in this case, because you've just parsed a JSON array, every time you're reading the data in, it's always a new object. And that therefore forces the whole page to flash. Ugh. I feel like React would have handled this years ago though, because it's a pretty common, it seems like a pretty common edge case. So it depends on how you're passing the data in, I think, and what would be a simple, probably, I mean, not, an, not a beautiful solution, but at least simple is that to pass the string directly instead of the object. So in this case, I'm passing in the object with the name property 
And so maybe you would look at that and say, well, is this the same object I saw before? Uh, if I just pass the actual name, then I think that it will say, is this string the same as the string I saw before? In that case, it would match. So you would either get or not get or an update, not get an update if there's no change. Hmm. Um, yeah. React, I will not comment. <laughs> <laughs> so, but with the, the new approach with, um, with a multi-dimensional structure, then those would actually be objects that we keep. And so each time that we read those in, it would still be the same object. Nice. So let's, um, I wanted to, oops, this is the wrong window. I wanted to show, I can show the test cases. Um, also maybe explain a little bit more for the multi-dimensional data structures. The sure. example you gave was a spreadsheet. So for people listening in, what are other use cases that they might want to use a multi-dimensional data structure for? I think it, I mean, I actually have a hard time thinking of an application where you wouldn't want this because you typically have at least uh, probably one piece of data that is at least one dimensional where you want to continually add something to a list or, or a, a, I don't want to call it a list, but a series. Um, again, like if you want to ver have some versions data, perhaps it's just an object, perhaps it's a, um, if it's a Word document, you could potentially use it for that as the versions of your Word document where each index is just a big string. So I think that's one simple example of a simple structure. And then in the cases of any sort of a Trello board, um, or um, any sort of these collaboration tools where you have notes and things that you're passing around and sharing. I think those are all really good examples. Of so course, okay. ladies and gentlemen, that math can actually be used in computer science and web application building. So let's see if I can pull this in here. Yeah, this is, this branch has got some issues. Let me just. Um, have you had any problems with gun in particular while you've been prototyping these things? Well, I wanted to, I don't know if it's a problem. I think I found a good solution. I wanted to have an, a nice way. So also too, um, the context for me is typically developer experience. So right. I'm thinking about a person who's in the position that they're trying to develop the application and they don't know ex what they may have an idea initially of what their data structure looks like, but that can change as they're making progress. And so we want to be able to easily wipe out data and have a clean slate. <laughs> I think you know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for now, I'm running everything in offline mode. And when and in the application, I have a couple tricks in place to detect if this person has, if the developer has made a change from the last time it ran. And I just do a clear. Uh, uh, local storage clear and then we reload so it's very tricky uh, it does not like to it does not like to give up <laughs> synchronizing data so in order to clear things out to get a fresh reset when you're doing development mode is you have to crash any um, super peers you have to delete the data on disk you have to delete the data in all of the browsers 
and you have to reset all of the browsers. If you fail, if you fail at any one of those before restarting, it'll attempt to resynchronize information. And that can be very frustrating while doing development testing. Right. And I, I've, uh, I've started writing up some issues to track the different goals that I have and shared those in the chat to see if I can, uh, if anybody's interested, if they'll join in and see if they want to make some contributions. Um, and that's one of the things that I wrote is that, uh, so in the meantime, I can do this in the browser, just clear local storage, reload the window, and we're should be pretty much good to go. But if you're running a development server, that's going to be more tricky. Yes, absolutely. And I just left that pretty open-ended because, um, yeah, I, I didn't really have a clear idea of what all that would entail. But yeah, I think that restarting the server with uh, and and deleting your the raw disk directory. Yes. Right? Yeah. The cheat if you're running a development server that's in the wild, like what you have now with now.sh um, versus a local server running, is I would just wind up having um, a particular unique beta name for the app level key. So that way, if I then change that app level key, the first git that I do in gun, then everything underneath it is going to be off of a different identifier. Now, the old data is still going to be hanging around someplace, but it's just going to be dereferenced at that point from the application layer. Now, if you are running a local development peer, I, I do this all the time, and my, my trick is usually just crash the local host, restart the browser with a, a local storage.clear, and remove Radisk and then reset the, the server, which is a pain, but that does, for the most part, clear everything out each time. But yes, it, it, the more peers you add to the, the system, it, it becomes combinatorically more complex. So you're loading up some tests that you have for multidimensional data. And so here we get to see what the results look like. So we have a function within the framework called derived tags. And so the concepts now, the, the terms that I use to refer to these things are, is that we, we have a bucket. Uh, a bucket can hold a data structure or it can hold a more simple type of object. I'm not sure if I want to continue using the word schema or not, but a bucket can contain simple properties, simple properties being, being your primitives, strings and numbers and, and so forth. Or we can put a data structure there. And I don't yet know how these will work together. If I want to allow both properties and a data structure, I might do that. Or I may choose to just make it so that um, if you're going to use a data structure, don't be putting simple properties in the, into the same bucket because that may just be too confusing for the developer or anybody trying to read it or use it or understand what structure am I working with. So we'll see how that goes as I continue to experiment. But when we run derived tags, uh, we provide a definition that looks like this. So it is an array of arrays. We're treating uh, these as tu uh, tuples. So we have the label for our dimension and then a length value. And so then we can um, provide, in this first example, we're defining a one by three space. And we, let's see here, uh, convert access definition to message, right? Oh, so 
remember how this works. Oh, this is a test of, here we are. I think I was testing a function that I use. So I think that derive tags relies on this, this function here because we use, this is basically the first step of the process. And so then we have a look at what this looks like. And I think, yeah, so this is basically the input to derive tags. Derive tags automatically runs this function to get your results. And then, so this is the, the result is an array of strings. And this is every uh, possible tag, every, every coordinate, you, uh, possible coordinate combination for your definition. Is the data being linked or is the data being embedded? So if I were to change one of the values, would it up, would, would loading it through another tag show those updates because it's using the graph underneath? Or would you have to re-index the data because it's embedded into the, the bucket? Hmm, I, I don't think I'm quite understanding, but if you're saying, are they, are they linked? Is the graph, like, do you have relationships? Yes. So for example, any objects, like if you do, if you look at all of the data, um, it's using set, like, okay. yeah. So, or yes, it'll use set. So the data that we have here, this is, if you were to say, give me all data for, you know, any value of my coordinates, you'll get every object that, that exists in this structure. And if you were to look at zero, zero, you'd get just the only object at this location and that would match with one of the objects that you got from this same lookup. In the case of a coordinate, let's say zero, zero, whether it be GPS or you know, a Cartesian coordinate, how many values or objects or records can exist in, at one point in space? Only one or can, multi, can there be multiple things at a single co coordinate? Yeah, so this is designed right now around uh, some the, the more simple use case, which is that you can place one object at this location. Okay, perfect. Yeah, if you wanted to do multiple objects, then I think you're gonna, I mean, I'm, I haven't bothered to try thinking that far because I'm just trying to make That's this fine. work. First. I, just wanna, I just wanna make sure that um, uh, I'm understanding what are the limitations and what is the flexibility of right. things. Cool. Yeah, we're starting off with something that is um, has limited scope for sure. So well, here we could, already very powerful in the sense that it will in that it will put these indexes into many different buckets, and I'm guessing you'll be able to then show me in the tests that you can pull it up from any direction. Yes. Yeah, um, that would be another thing we could chat about is um, testing. I suppose that we can just run gun. Well, it would all be asynchronous, so that would work. Um, I haven't written any tests yet where I'm actually loading gun and running it within the tests. Okay. And here we can see the results. This is a three by one by three. Uh, originally I was thinking that I was actually going to include the actual labels on these, but then I made the choice that I didn't really see a lot of use in that. It just seems like order is simple enough. Um, you defined the order as X, Y, and Z. So now from now on, you should assume that these are always in the order of X, Y, and Z. Yes, and that's what's called a column store. 
Gotcha. So you don't know all these things. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just learning as I go. <laughs> you, you only, the, the, the truest way to learn something is to do it the wrong ways. <laughs> and oftentimes the wrong ways will be the right ways, but it's very difficult to understand a concept unless you actually play with it, unless you touch it, unless you build a Lego set. And in that process, the actual experience of trial and error is what teaches you the most. So everybody who's listening, you should get out there and, and actually play with data structures and make mistakes, get messy and <laughs> whatever, whatever the old magic school bus uh, <laughs> was. So um, as far as then um, putting this on the user object, uh, we have to have somebody logged in in order for us to be able to do that. And I, haven't really played around with it much, but it looked like on the docs that it's really easy to log somebody in. And I guess I wanted to ask generally, should, what would you recommend that I take the approach within this framework of just creating like a default logged in user so that people can put data onto the user object? Um, what would you, you know, how would you approach that? So if you save data to a public space and that public space gets connected in a network of peers, anybody can read and write to that data. If you put data on a user graph, that's protected and only the user can write to it. Now the data by default is also readable, um, unless you specifically want the data to be private, then you can encrypt the data and there's features for that, there's functions and methods for that. But if you wind up giving everybody access to the username and password to log into the cryptographic account. Just quick disclaimer for anybody from the cryptography world is the public keys and the private keys are not derived from the username and password they're associated with. So the account is still cryptographically secure, but it is easy to log into without having to do any sort of passphrase seed management keys. Um, if that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. That's just notes to blockchain people and other people in cryptography. So if you do give away the key um, to log in, whether it be the private key or a password, then it's a effectively a public space. Um, anybody can read and write data to that. So there's not really any particular gains to um, having a default user that everybody can log into unless you via some side channel like email or texting somebody or in real life privately give them the login to your app in which case now you're just running um an organization out of the user and only the people who you've talked to separately privately um, are able to access the account and only they are able to write to that user graph so well, it just depends upon what you're doing so the main thing i'm thinking is if i create uh, if i say gun.get app.get boards so i'm creating a, a space to hold some data and it's pretty simple um everybody would put and read from that same data so that would all be shared by everyone yes and if i instead put that data under a user object then each person has their own set isn't that is that correct yes okay so what i was thinking i would do this is not in the situation of trying to create actual um, fully private like application state data we can i'll come back to that um, but 
my thinking with giving somebody a default user within the framework to, to be able to put some data in place is so that if let's say somebody's building um, a chat room and we want people to be able to just open the chat room and start talking without having done much, they just generate a random name for them and now they can start talking. I was thinking the way that uh, the framework would behave by default is that uh, when we load up, we look into local storage to see if we have a name. If there's not one, we generate one. And then if so long as there is one, then we continue to use that every time we run. So for the developer, if they want to clear this, then they can get a different name. But then this way we're able to put data that's, um, so then when we, in the example of boards, like app.boards, each person can have their own board instead of all sharing it. So I think that's the main thing I'm thinking about. So let's divide that up into three categories. The first category is public space. There's one board, everybody edits it. The second category, I'm gonna call rooms. You don't actually need to be logged in, but you might generate a unique name or room that anybody can edit it. So there's gonna be multiple public boards and you could start your own, um, your own quote, private board by just randomly creating and I, a room name. Now that doesn't guarantee the security of it, but as long as you share that board with people, it can be publicly edited by those other people in that quote room. The third category is the user system, right? And the user system is not saying any of the first two. If somebody goes to the site and they make a board, it's gonna exist in isolation from everybody else. So in this case, it sounds like yes, when people show up on this particular app and they start creating a board, you don't want it to be a room. You don't want it to be in a fully singular public space. You want it to be a singular board for them in isolation from everybody else. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or, I mean, it could be, at this point, I'm not really, uh, I'm just trying to first address the, the issue of each person when they start putting data into board that it's not the same board as somebody else. That's the first thing I'm trying to, to tackle. And then after that, more. But distinct from a room, yes? Um, if I share a URL with you to this board, then by default, um, let's take a lot of um, chat software like Appearin. Um, you share a, a URL, and you get a new room, but everybody who goes to that URL is all editing the same room. In this case, under the user context, if they go to the URL, they're, they're still not gonna be sharing a room with anybody else. It's gonna, it's gonna put them in an isolated space. Yeah, every person would have their own um, space that is unique. Okay. Because we've we've generated a unique key, and you would need to know. You'd have two things would have to happen. You'd have to both know the unique key of somebody else. Um, I say key. I'm just talking about a string. I'm not talking about anything special, like a not a cryptographic key or anything of that sort, but just a string. Um, and then you would also have to have the application built in such a way that when you put it into the URL, the application looks it up and shows you that data. Whereas I'm just talking about um, where do we put data. Because if we don't have this in the first place, then the only place we can put data is into, like when we declare board, 
board is suddenly global and it's the only one that exists. Whereas I think most application developers are probably going to be starting from the position that they want to put some data into a spot that's just for this one user. Yes. And so let me add one more edge case there for the third one with the users. Not only would you need to know the, the ID for the user, but even if somebody else loaded that board, they wouldn't be able to modify it unless they, happened, unless they knew how to log in to that user. Yeah. It's distinct from option number two, which is the rooms thing, is everybody gets a different room, but as long as you know the ID to the room, you can edit it. Mm -hmm. You can edit it regardless of whether you know how to log in or not. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and so then I think the, the thing that I want to chat about after that is the um, non-synchronized data. So we want all of the great features of GUN without sending it over the wire. We just want it to be, it's the kind of data that if you reload the application, you pretty much expect it to not be the same as before. You kind of want it to always just be whatever hard-coded data the application loads with. So there's two categories to this. Um, the first category is, is the user. And then the second category is this other thing that I'm doing with party. Um, so I'm going to start with a simpler case, which is you do want local state that when a user refreshes, it's just the same as before. And oftentimes you don't want to go to the complexity of that data having to be transmitted or sent over the internet because then you have to worry about making sure that data is private or encrypted um, and you don't want to just leak that data. There is utility to that and you, and there are some of the stuff that we chatted with in the, the Gitter about how that can be done. But I want to make a quick disclaimer here is every single time I've gone to implement those types of systems, I have always wanted on another device like my phone um, or when I'm out in a different country and I log in through somebody else's device, that local user state to be restored on any other device that I load from. So I would out of the box discourage people from thinking, oh, this is just local data. I'm just gonna toss it locally. I'm not gonna worry about synchronizing it because most of the time that information is not local, it's user specific. And when it's user specific, it still needs to be synchronized, but it's just local to that user, but the user might be on different localities like a phone or a laptop. Now I'm not saying you're wrong, you're absolutely right that there, that there is the easy fast way to do it, but I, as a result, have not created any easy tooling for that. Now, the second option is this party thing. Um, as a quick backdrop, party.lol is a browser extension that you install and your identity, your um, account, your, your posts, your tweets, your information is first synchronized to your local device. And then it's published um, on whatever website you have to happen to go to. And this is going back to your comment that if a user shows up on a website, it'd be nice if we could just have a space automatically created for, uh, created for them that they can play with. And then if they decide to move forward, you know, create an account or register or something like that, then it, then it synchronizes. The sweet thing with the party approach is if people already have party installed and they visit a site, all the site is going to do 
is prompt them for their name. It won't even necessarily share that name with anybody. It just lets you literally be automatically logged into any app in the world, whether you've seen it before or not, and start playing with it without actually disclosing any of your data or having to sign up. And I think that's ultimately going to be the future of how applications will behave. But there is then the nuance of, okay, well, if you do have this space automatically carved out on your local device um, and, you, and you do like it and you do like the app that you happen to use, there is, certain, there is some amount of information that winds up having to be synchronized. And ideally, if you drop your laptop or your phone, you don't want to lose all of your data everywhere. Uh, you do want to be able to log into a different device and, and recover everything. So at some point, we're then back at stage one. Um, without something like Party, so MaskBook um, is also doing something similar, is that without something like Party, you get this frustrating thing is that every single time a user visits a site anonymously, you're creating a new account, which is fine because accounts can be cheap and free. But if a user does wind up um, using your application from a logged in standpoint and they weren't aware that they were logged out, you might have accidentally generated two, three, 15, 20 different accounts that they forgot about. And now your application logic is going to have to manage accounts of accounts and merging those accounts together. And that becomes fairly difficult, um, but is worth it. And part of the way that I'm trying to solve that is, is by actually having something like Party take care of that and handle that for you. So there's a lot of really interesting things to discuss just, just on this idea of automatically creating an anonymous um, random account for users when they show up on a site. But there's a lot of different trade-offs too. Everything from the application developer to how privacy is handled to how um, account management should occur if people accidentally do things. So more than happy to dive into those things, but I just wanted to lay out the land of the different options. Sure. And not, not everybody's going to do this. I just want to make sure that people are aware of the different methods um, that you might want to think about when implementing an app. Yeah, totally. Um, how about we go to some gun source code and start to talk about the uh, network synchronization? How do we, uh, maybe we can, with the remaining time that we have, start to discuss some of the, the options that we talked about in the chat. Yes. You cannot share screen while the other participant is sharing. So I'll have you. You want to switch to yours or use mine? Be a little bit easier um, from my standpoint. Okay. I think, oh, here's stop share. And I'll try and narrate while I'm going through it as well. So the networking code in GUN is called DAM, and that stands for Daisy Chain Ad Hoc Mesh Network. And previously, this was its own module and a separate component. But over time, I realized that GUN actually might depend upon DAM more than DAM depends upon GUN. And so it is included by default inside of uh, GUN Core. Now, there's two different ways to look at that. is to either go to GUN.js, 
and find the mesh section. Or if you prefer files split up, you go to the source directory in the GitHub, or if you have cloned and you go to, um, let me find. Are looking for mesh? Yes, mesh. Why is that not showing up? Oh, adapters, my bad. Um, you go to source, adapters, slash uh, mesh. And that, that might change over time because mesh has become more core. So for people uh, separately, just later, go to gun.eco slash docs slash dam, all capital D-A-M, capital D, capital A, capital M. And it will give a quick overview of the algorithm that is used and its contrast to some other structures. It will also have a nice GIF that kind of explains the brute force method that exists below dam that gun runs by default. And dam winds up adding some optimizations on top of it. But you don't really need to know all that for the, for the actual source code. Um, for the actual source code, there's two major pieces of dam, which is dam needs to hear information and dam needs to say information. I, when I'm designing algorithms and protocols, try and design things that can work not only for machines, but also for humans. So I wind up naming things uh, oftentimes in very human-like language. Um, so every machine is going to hear something and say something. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the machine that is just kind of turned on and wants to talk out to the network? Or do you want to talk about a machine that comes online and wants to hear information? Because depending upon whether you're writing data or reading data, uh, there's a different story that can be told. Let's talk about the former where you're trying to um, say. Okay. So you spin up, you wake up one day, and in the human analogy, um, you have a blindfold on because we can't assume that you actually are talking to anybody uh, that you, you can't see. You can only use speaking to determine things. So there's two categories in gun of the data. There's what's called the envelope for gun data. And the envelope is running off of DAM's uh, protocol structure. And then there's the actual payload of the data, which is oftentimes guns graph data. Uh, in HTTP, this is called the header versus the body. So there turns out that um, DAM is just an adapter to gun. There's, so I'm going pretty fast. There's a lot of different pieces. So I'm going to be skipping from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing pretty, pretty quickly. Um, two different things in gun is adapters and extensions. Extensions modify the chaining API. And they're just kind of sugar sprinkled on top of gun that they're built on top of other uh, extensions and other um, chaining methods. But adapters in GUN are fundamentally different than extensions. Adapters, you have to speak the wire spec. You have to understand GUN's actual wire protocol. So you can do a lot more powerful things with adapters, but you have to think of everything at a very, very, very low level. Um, while with extensions, you can usually just layer extension on top of extension on top of extension to create really rich, complex behavior that then cascades down into the wire spec at some point. So 
DAM sets itself up um, as an adapter that hooks into uh, the system on, if you're looking at the source code for adapter slash mesh, not, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't use line numbers. At the end of DAM, or towards the end of DAM, you'll see that there are a couple things called root.onCreate, root.onBuy, and root.onHigh. Root there is guns root. So you'll see that DAM checks for when the database is instantiated and it's been created, it's done. That callback, you'll then notice that it attaches something called mesh.say to root.onOut. And that's basically saying for all of the IO that is going in and out of gun, mesh.say, we want to say on all data that's going out of the root of gun. That, of course, assumes that you understand that gun's chaining API and everything internally runs off of this event-driven uh, structure of, of inputs and outputs. That's a whole other talk, but I think we've briefly discussed it in one of the uh, earlier podcasts. So this is how DAM hooks into all of GUN. It mesh.say, that function, mesh.say, is going to get every single message or event or envelope that is spoken out or emitted out on the root of GUN. And that's everything. So mesh.say, if you now pull up the actual function, um, has a lot of really ugly logic. And the ugly logic is just sequentially checking for performance optimizations on how to batch messages. Because at any point that we're touching hardware, whether that be uh, writing bytes to a disk or writing bytes to a socket that's going out on a physical radio or um, a physical ethernet cable or something like that, a trick that I was taught by the UWebSockets um, developer who's got really good experience on high-performance WebSockets is that you, you, you want as much as possible to give any hardware a bunch of bytes in, um, in intervals. And that gives you more reliable performance versus if you are every if you're just constantly writing data randomly to um, to the physical disk or wire, it you're you're more likely to get build up and bloat. So mesh.say's full responsibility <laughs> is to handle all sorts of logic, um, starting with well, is there another adapt uh, another adapter that's trying to hook into Gun's output system? We'll go ahead and call that with the next middleware. Um, if there is no message to even be sent, ignore things. And for people um, watching the screencast, I'm just going line by line, explaining the gist of each one of these lines. In terms of people just listening to the podcast, uh, I'm still catching up. You don't, you don't need to worry about anything. I then create um, a namespace on each message for the underscore property just to attach metadata that I then manage in different um, CPU cycles of when we're trying to write data to disk. You'll see where this comes in. So the next most important thing is that DAM requires every single message to have a unique identifier. And that is important because by default, GUN operates off of a very UDP-like structure. It's fire and forget, fire and forget, fire and forget. 
um, you could very easily lose packets and messages going out. But if you want to have a TCP-like acknowledgement um, request response cycle, you, it's pretty trivial to build that on top of a UDP-like structure by just having the other end grab the ID of the original message, generate a new message that is responding to or acknowledging the original ID. So every message in DAM must necessarily have unique identifier, whether it's fire forget or a request response. So we create that ID if it doesn't exist. Then there's this really sweet optimization, which is the double hash in DAM. And what that does is it takes any payload, any body, any put that happens to be running through the network and it's going to do a very fast hash on that data. And it's very, very different than stuff like um, other DWeb protocols where they're entirely hash-based. Is The only reason why we're doing a fast hash on this is to deduplicate traffic in the network. Let's say I am Alice and I'm asking for some data, like um, what is what is the latest weather for Redwood City or Stanford? Um, or what is my profile information? Or what is this video? Because GUN is a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network that's decentralized, there might be multiple peers that reply to that one request. And those multiple peers that reply to that one request might be one degree, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees out. They might be multiple hops out. So, if Alice happens to be on a cell phone and is only connected to two peers directly, and those two peers don't have the data that Alice wants, those two peers are going to ask other peers. And so it's very, very, very useful if, um, if there's this peer that's sitting in between Alice and these other peers that actually have the data in this daisy chain, that if five peers reply to the daisy chain in the middle, and the daisy chain in the middle then replies to Alice, the daisy chain in the middle can use this double hash, the, the symbol double hash, which is the fast hash on the data responses, to deduplicate the five other responses such that it only sends one response back to Alice. So it's a, it's a very simple way that's completely additive only into the network that gives you a lot of performance um, guarantees that you could not through the other routes. So that's what that handles. Um, then we do this check for whether there's uh, the raw property on the meta of this, um, of this message. This gets a little bit more um, complicated, but the gist is because data is ultimately gonna get serialized to a string in order to go out um, as bytes over a socket or on disk, we try and preemptively serialize the message in advance such that then when we actually go to write those bytes to the web to the socket or to the wire um, all those bytes are already prepackaged and prepared as strings so that way we don't have to do any processing at the point that we actually write to the socket so that's what's happening here is it's basically preparing this message and we might not actually send this message out now. We might wait one millisecond to batch up a bunch of other responses. But then when we do go to write to disk, we don't have to do any further processing, so it's fast. So we, we sequentially um, prepare messages, but don't necessarily send them out. And then there's this weird um, extra thing, which is 
for each time that we're preparing a message there, this message could be a response or an acknowledgement to another message. And we can, we can figure that out if there happens to be the at sign on the message envelope. And if that at sign is on the message envelope, we can do this extra optimization where we combine the fast hash of the message with the acknowledgement to that ID, and we can attach it um, as, as something that we can look up later in the future. I, this is starting to then get into optimizations of where acts will come in and hook into Dam's behavior. Uh, so I'm not gonna go over that quite yet, but this winds up being pretty important and lets you do some further optimizations. Um, and then specifically, if that message has already been replied to and has the same hash as before, we don't need to rebroadcast that message as it's talking. So this is gonna go on for um, several other lines of code, but it's easier at this point. And then hopefully we'll all be able to shut up on explaining what Dam is doing and then get to probably your original question of how to interact with the system. Um, but I figured there's an opportunity to explain Dam, might as well go for it since uh, it might be useful for future people. We add the, the message that we're about to send out to a deduplicator that we track. So that way if we receive this message back in to gun, we deduplicate, we know that we've already processed that message. So we're gonna track that ID and we're gonna attach the message to it. Um, Dan then wants to check that if we don't have a specific peer that we're sending this data to, um, gun does not handle really any peer logic, Dam does. And in Dam, you can target specific peers. Gun is just, it's very mesh networking. So if we don't have a peer, which is the default, we wanna basically send this message to all peers um, that we happen to be directly connected to. And there's a few optimizations here, which is basically checking that if this message happens to be a response to another message, we actually do not need to send it to all peers because we've already built something like a TCP tunnel of the, of the route that this message has traveled to its intended recipient that is then replying back to the person who had originally sent. In which case, if that is true, we only wanna send it to the peer that this message was sent via in the daisy chain. Um, again, bunch of minor little optimizations. But now our acknowledgements can basically tunnel back through the daisy chain that we've already constructed outbound. And we don't have to rebroadcast it um, flooding the rest of the network. And that gives you very nice optimization guarantees. And um, like I said before, if you, if you don't have a specific peer, you're just going to send it to everybody. If you do have, um, and that's what's happening in these two lines, if you have, um, if the peer that we're sending this data out to doesn't actually have a socket, then you wanna actually connect to that peer to, to lazily load connections. Uh, so you preserve, you preserve bandwidth if it, for lower end devices. This is another little optimization trick, which is specific for Axe, so I'm not gonna explain it, but it basically says, don't resend this message if it was the last message we sent to this peer. 
um, there's, there was a way I wasn't able to determine that in X that then I just left for Dam to handle. And then um, finally is this one is, and this is actually Dam proper. The message that was sent out that we've received that we're now going to rebroadcast contains the IDs of the peers that that message was sent to. We do not need to, if we happen to also be connected to those peers in a mesh network, we don't need to resend that message to those peers because they supposedly should have already gotten the message. And the guarantees on that is up to the sender, not up to us. We're just a relay, we're a network switch. So if the URL or the peer ID or the ID of that peer um, happens to be in the two property, we, we, we can cancel. We don't actually need to resend this message to that peer. Um, and then finally, we're basically done is if we're in peer.batch, that basically saying we have throttled for one millisecond and we're just going to append all of the messages into this queue called tail that we will then flush in one millisecond from now. Um, but if we are indeed uh, sending this message for the first time, then we do send the very first message out immediately. And then we set a flag um, for subsequent batched messages that we will resolve inside of a timeout. So that's all of DAM for sending data out. A lot of logic there. Figured I might as well cover it very quickly. To your question, though, um, you're not going to actually be tampering with with this function here. But I want you to know all the different things it's doing because as soon as you start modifying um, what data is getting broadcast out on the network and not, you, you, you're vitally touching um, a lot of how GUN operates. So if you start seeing a lot of bugs after adding something that prevents messages from broadcasting, it, it, it may have to do with um, with how that's structured. So the important piece that you need to, that um, you want to start with is where DAM itself hooked into GUN. Yeah, which this is, this is what I was uh, thinking too, is like, because I think there's, there's two approaches that have been discussed in the chat, which is one is like having your listener uh, filter the incoming before it sends it out as outbound traffic or modify um, um, which pieces of data actually um, uh, attach to listeners, right? Yes. So at the networking layer, there's these two ways. You can either create an adapter that hooks into GUN, but you have to be very, very careful because the middleware system is, is is all plugging a bunch of wires in and out to each other. So if at any point you add an adapter that then doesn't trigger the next um, uh, adapter, uh, everything just stops working. The second way is to use DAM and actually overload mesh.say. So you know that all of, all of the networking traffic is going to get sent out via mesh.say, so you could you could um, overload mesh.say and it give it your own function and you keep a backup copy of the old one. You do some logic in mesh.say 
and then you call the original mesh stop saying. That's probably a little bit easier for most people getting started out of, out of the gate because they only have to handle, they just handle two function calls. Um, they're, they're overloading something. And that's actually valid for how DAM should work. The more appropriate way to do it is to create the adapter as a middleware that hooks into this, but there are a lot of little nuances you need to know about when in the life cycle do you attach that adapter? Um, when in the processing of your message do you handle things synchronously versus asynchronously versus passing them on to the next piece in the adapter? Um, I also earlier mentioned that what you may be doing is a two-component piece, that you create a new chain extension that then modifies outbound messages in the chain such that then when the adapter receives it, it can detect that it came from that part of the chain and then squelch it. Um, and unfortunately, that then means you have to know how to build both an extension as well as an adapter. So I think there's one third and final option that I'm trying to remember, but give me a second on that. Oh, right, right. The, the third and easiest option, although it could be buggy, because uh, it's not as tested, is you instantiate a separate gun database instance and you pass it a different um, file. So that way, ideally, it's not saving to the same context as your synchronized gun. And you then, tr and, uh, maybe I'll just give an example. So you write some go code like var gun equals gun instantiate as your main application code. And you might do var me is equal to gun again, but you pass it a parameter with file um, local only. So ideally this gun instance is, is only saving to um, the local to its local storage. And the other gun instance is saving to local storage and to a set of peers. So in this second call here where we're passing file, so this, this is, um, code that we would run in the browser, right? This should also work for um, Node.js, but again, running multiple gun instances in the same process or thread is not very well tested. So you might certainly complain if uh, there's any bugs. I think that for right now, um, I'm only, th I'm thinking of browser only. I'm only uh, concerning myself with um, people building web applications. And of course, if they want to take this to the world of node, run it in a node process, you know, that's up to them. Um, it's um, most things are not that hard to move over to node, but sometimes it's harder to move from node to the browser. But yeah, that's, that's yeah. But there is the problem that as soon as you do this two gun instances in a single you know, browser app, you are immediately locking yourself into this assumption that we mentioned earlier that locality is here in the browser versus locality is here in the user. So most of the time, like I said before, locality 
is often in the user, not necessarily in the browser. Yeah, and but so in in this case, though, or typical, uh, the kinds of things that I want to put into state are like the um, the state of a um, if a drop down is open or closed. So these are things that are really ephemeral. We really don't need to put this into local storage. We just need it to be consistent across our current session because let's say, for example, uh, a good example is when you have one of these, um, like let's say you have radios or checkboxes and uh, the person has made a selection, but because they've made this selection, another, let's say a field, a, a text input gets disabled. So they picked option A, text field is enabled. They pick option B, text field is disabled. Well. I want to be able to store this as an actual piece of data that I can, my user, my, my uh, React components can read so that I can disable or enable that text field. But I really don't care about this being the same on another device or it even being the same across sessions. Because if they reload the browser, I'm just going to go back to the default. So in this case, you don't even want it to survive past reload. Right. Wow, I mean, this is kind of cool. Again, this is bending my mind a little bit because um, I, I, I do try and build gun such that it's flexible and can be used for anything. But it sounds like in this case, you're literally using it just for a UI state. Yes. Um, and not even UI state for, for reloading the page, literally just UI state locally. Yeah. Okay, um, that's pretty mind boggling, in which case, None of the networking, <laughs> none of the networking informa uh, information matters. Um, so we could potentially just disable storage and networking entirely. Yes, and that, but so this is the and so this is what I'm trying to get at is that I still want to have some data that I that I do store, keep, and and synchronize. But then I do want to have another piece that is that is super ephemeral. It's only for the active session, the, well, the current session. I'm a bit honored, but I'm gonna, I will challenge you. Um, yeah. Why not just store that as a plain JavaScript object that you reference? Because I still want the gun API. I want the real-time features. I want relationships. There's still features in gun that I think are gonna be useful. For example, let's say I've got a user interface that has a lot of these radio check buttons and text boxes, and they interact in some interesting way where I want to be able to uh, use relationships and real-time. So that then I can make it really simple that my components listen for this data. And if that data changes in one spot, all of the listeners update. That, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, I mean, you're just, you're just making my, my uh, brain go off in endorphins of like dreamy like, <laughs> hopes that, uh, that gun's not even used in the future for uh, database stuff. It's just it's just a UI library. I mean, I, I think that'd be pretty pretty cool. But that's my bias because I I am the author behind it. But the fact that uh, you're moving that direction um, or already there is pretty exciting. So, in which case, I would say you can instantiate gun in the browser um, such that DAM and the networking and the storage layers aren't even aren't even attached because. At the beginning of my explanation, as I mentioned, that DAM is just kind of an adapter into GUN. So there's a point where we're, we're disabling it such that even the networking logic I explained, um, we don't even, ideally, we don't even have to write an adapter for this because we're just disabling the adapters that handle storage and networking in the first place. Does that make sense? While, 
yes. before not synchronizing certain information was using the approach of, well, we do have the networking layer in place. You need to understand how it works. This is how it broadcasts to the mesh network. So then how do you squelch it based on a per peer basis or based on a per record basis or based on a per adapter basis? Now, I do want to say, um, not only have I not done a ton of testing on multiple gun instances in the same process, that should work fine. I've done far less testing on gun running in memory only without a storage system. So I bet, I bet that if you were to instantiate gun like this on line three that I have var me equals gun, websockets false, local storage false, that you might get nine second timeout errors at any point you save data because it's waiting nine seconds to get an acknowledgement from disk, but there is no disk, and so it's going to start complaining at you. And, and I have had some problems in the past without those acknowledgements coming through for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, and I will need to fix it for you, is that um, nothing updates in the UI for about nine seconds until the error triggers. So if you do encounter that, please very quickly complain to me. Um, but this is an incredible use case that I would be very eager to explore that I want to make sure the experience with gun purely in memory within inside of the same session, not even across reload just for, I want to make sure that is a killer experience for you. Um, because it, gun should work really well in that setting. And if it doesn't, uh, there's probably just a couple bugs that I need to, to fix um, because I haven't prioritized testing that. So thank you for bringing this up. It's uh, kind of out of the, out of, to me, it's out of the blue, but I, it has me really excited to expand the scope of its use case because I'd love it if you wrote, if, if we get this to work, it, either it works flawlessly out of the box or it has some of these problems I'm predicting is going to happen as a result of me not testing those case studies. But once we get to the point that it works, I'd really love it to have like a whole blog post that you write on like how to do, um, how to do this with gun because it would really open up an avenue of people th that people could join to use gun, nothing for the database stuff. And I, I would, that'd be tremendous, that'd be tremendous value for me. I think of a, a lot of value for everyone. I've, um, uh, yeah, this has been the, the direction that um, I want to go. It was, it was an epiphany for me at some point when I was, I was using Gun and I was trying to integrate it with the libraries that I normally use in React applications to pass data around and manage it. And I, I had this realization that Gun can do what I normally would do with multiple other libraries, both Redux and Redux Logic. Um, I use these for two different things. Redux it just handles purely the application state and keeping it synchronized. Um, when you make an update into one spot, you want to have, let's say you want to display this data in multiple other places in your application, that's what Redux handles. And then you add on these other libraries like Thunk or Epics or Sagas Observables or Redux Logic. These are all different libraries strictly for just handling your asynchronous stuff, which is sending the data out to the internet, off to a database or a peer, whoever it is, have it come back, put it into Redux, and it's so much work. And you, with, if you use Gun, you can just strip both of those things out. You don't need to worry about them anymore. And you can just have one really 
ridiculously easy UI library and you simply turn on, you, you pop up a server, connect to it as a peer, and you have synchronization. You didn't need to write all of the logic involved in doing that. You've sold me. I, I'm committed to, I want to make sure this works. Um, my, my priorities right now is to finish this uh, rad debugging because the, the benefits there will absolutely impact UI performance because you, you will get the stack trace problem if you write things in a loop to gun. So, and that's something you, you might do in a UI. So the, the, the things I'm doing right now will absolutely benefit this. And then after that, I'm working on, on making sure that the infinity scrolling feature for Marty's system, um, which is also a UI uh, feature, is working properly. And then I'd be venturing into testing things at scale with saving a bunch of video data continuously into GUN in a large testing network that we already have up that I'll be able to check against and see how things handle such that I'd move more into act stuff. But I'm more than happy to interject between um, getting the rad, the rad storage stuff fixed and the act stuff fixed, making sure that everything's polished for this UI stuff because that, that would be killer on its own. So please aggressively complain about any little um, I, you, you said that things already have been really easy, but I, I, I want to make sure I eliminate even hiccups and bugs that you encounter to make sure the experience is flawless from beginning to end. So thank you for bringing this up. I'm, I'm, I'm sold and I'm going to do as much as I can in terms of work to, to make sure that it, it's totally perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, we can just uh, collaborate on this um, as far as uh, getting this implemented. So, you know, make this e easy enough to do, but yeah, gun has been, has been really painless. So. Um, Yay. Glad <laughs> well, let's uh, wrap up there. Try out, um, go ahead and throw away all of the uh, networking logic and, and just run gun without any adapters at all which you should see on line three. Um, tell me if that immediately causes some problems or if it uh, jump starts you quickly into this and then we'll follow up from there. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for going over. I'll, I'll uh, let you go because we're about 20 minutes past. <laughs> thanks so much, Rob. I'll see everybody else next week on the D-Web Podcast. Bye.